the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We are, by nature, people who express dissatisfaction, hurt, discomfort, resentment, fault-finding. If I were to ask you to summarize everything I just said in one word, what word would that be? Sinful? Proud? Ungrateful? Well, what I just described is the actual English definition of the word complain. To express dissatisfaction, hurt, discomfort, resentment, and fault-finding. We like to complain. feels good to complain. We do it so much that often as believers we don't see it for what it is, sin in the eyes of our Maker. But when we do see it as such, we as Christians want to stop. How do we do that? Well, this morning we're going to look at how we can quit complaining, or in other words, quit your whining. Turn with me to James chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. James chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Again, we are coming to the conclusion of a multi-month study, verse by verse, if not word by word, through the epistle of James. We've come to the last chapter. We're right in the middle. Verses 9 through 11 of James chapter 5 says this. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job. And have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. This morning I want to give you four compelling reasons to quit complaining. Four compelling reasons to quit complaining, to quit your whining. The first compelling reason for believers to quit complaining is the mandate. The mandate. As with so many things, the most compelling reason is simply because God said so. In the beginning of verse 9, he commands us, Do not complain, brethren, against one another. Complaining is so commonplace these days that if I were to give most people examples of complaining that I just hear on the street every day, they'd probably argue, well, that's not really complaining. That is trying to get what they paid for, get what they deserve, just social commentary. As believers, we know the dangers of complaining in light of our trust in God and subsequent goal of being content in all situations. How much more then, as James tells us not to, is it harmful harmful to complain not just about things in general, but about other people? To complain literally in the Greek means to groan. It's that sigh or groan that we think or sound when facing a difficult situation. 
The kind of complaining that James warns about here is specifically directed at other Christians. Christians complaining about other Christians. It's not to say that we are allowed to complain in any other situation, but this is the particularly grievous sin that James wants to address. This prohibition fits well with a lot of what we've already seen over the months in James regarding this theme that's woven throughout the letter of sinful speech, the dangers, the warning, the rebuke of sinful speech. You can flip back and look at chapter 1, verse 26, which says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. We also later saw, we won't read it all, the big chunk of chapter 3 regarding the dangers of the tongue, perhaps the most well-known passage of Scripture regarding the tongue. And we saw James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, which says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? And now, James 5, nine. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. To be sure, complaining is a form of sinful speech, and with with all sinful speech that we have looked at in James and elsewhere, we know that it's not just what comes out of your mouth. It is because what comes out of your mouth is a reflection of your heart. Now, the context here, as we have seen already in James chapter 5, is waiting for the second coming of the Lord amidst oppression. And for James's audience, we are talking about extremely dire consequences. Remember that they were being abused by not being paid. Back then, you had to be paid day by day, especially in their profession, or they didn't eat. But for us today, it can be any number of difficulties that we know will be erased when the Lord returns. Anything that we could possibly complain about, including our complaining itself, is sin, And that ceases to be upon the Lord's return. And so even in our situations, whether it's oppression or discomfort or whatever it is that we want to complain about, we're tempted to complain about, we long for the second coming because that's when it will all end. It will all be dealt with. Now the problem is that when we are in pain, we face discomfort of any sort, we tend to let it out, and we tend to let it out on other Christians. In some ways, this is bizarre. In some ways, this is fitting. We want to be a good testimony so we don't complain to our unbelieving coworkers or family. And so we complain to and about other believers. Now, we know better than to actively shake our fists at God, and we certainly don't like to blame ourselves, so we lose patience We get frustrated, and the target is almost always others in the church. And again, there's a number of reasons for this. Perhaps it's because you think they are suffering less, and that bothers you. That bothers you that they are doing better in your eyes than you are. Perhaps it's because you want a solution. You want relief from the pain, and you complain to other Christians or about other Christians, because they cannot relieve that pain for you. 
You think, if anyone can deal with this, it's another believer, someone who has faith in Christ, and yet they haven't removed the pain, and so we complain about them. It may simply be because that person happens to be the closest to you, relationally or physically. We judge, we criticize, and so we complain about them. We develop a bitter, resentful spirit that comes out in our relationships with other Christians. And what you must recognize is that any complaint is ultimately a groaning against God. No other believer is sovereign over your circumstances. God is. And any lack of acceptance of your discomfort is a lack of acceptance of God's sovereignty. Now when we look back at it, when we look at our day, when we look at our history, our past, whatever it may be, when we hear others, we understand when we're rational, when we're not struggling in a trial, we understand that complaining is a waste of time. Rather than serving and glorifying God, we look only to ourselves and complain about the people around us. And when we look at the flip side of what we are called to do, seen in our last passage from last week, we see that complaining takes away from the anticipation and patience we are to have for the Lord's coming. And as a reminder, patience for the Lord's coming means living in a way that honors Him. We can go even further back in a wider context in James and say that complaining is focused on the world because the world provides those sources of discomfort. The world hurts. The world provides the sin and the difficulties and the need to complain, the desire to complain. And so we have to understand that it's not about us. It's not about this world. It is about God. It is about His sovereignty. It is about the truth that He is alive and coming again. In fact, when we think about Christ's Lordship, This serves as both a great catalyst as well as a gauge of your heart regarding complaining. It is a catalyst because we submit to Him, which doesn't just involve a suck-it-up attitude in difficult situations, but trusting, trusting Him in joy, recognizing that He really is sovereign, He is good, and He allows trials for your good. Christ's Lordship serves as a gauge of your heart. For the same reason, if you are complaining, and especially toward other believers whom you love and who love you, they're trying their best, then it may be a lack of trust in God over your circumstances. And so that's a gauge of how much you trust Him. This may also involve a proud rebellion against His Lordship in the sense that you think you know what is best for you And what's best for you is the removal of whatever you want to complain about. And when you think about complaining in the Scriptures, the classic case of complaining is, of course, the groaning of the Israelites in Egypt. They were saved from the harsh hand of Pharaoh. Despite all that God did for them, they complained to Moses about God and their current situation. And we look at that and say, man, so ungrateful. How dare they? Right there, the fire and the cloud. And just a few yards away, they're complaining to Moses. 
We're hungry. We're tired. We had it better back then when we were slaves. But let's not be naive here. Their situation was rough. It was hard. It was painful. You complain about trying to keep your family alive and happy in the expensive Bay Area. Try wandering in the wilderness, in a desert, keeping your families, your children, your livestock, millions of them, alive and well, while wandering in the desert where there is no food or water. Now that may resonate with us on a spiritual level. Sometimes in the midst of our complaining, in the midst of our trials, we feel like we are wandering in a spiritual wilderness. We feel like we are lost without direction, without comfort, without encouragement. It does not matter what people say. It does not matter how much you read the Bible. It does not matter how loudly you sing at a church service. You feel like something is amiss. But, like the Israelites... The key is to look back and recognize the salvation you have in God. Because that's the foundation of everything. You can't not complain if you're not saved. You can't not complain as a believer if you don't look back at the gospel and recognize who you are and what Christ has done for you to make you who you are. Look back at your salvation. For the Israelites, it was physical salvation. For us, it is spiritual and eternal. That's the mandate. Do not complain. And as wonderful as these motivations are for us, James actually goes on and is more harsh. He lays out a motivation that involves God, but not as comforting sovereign. The motivation he gives us to stop complaining is God as judge. And that's our second compelling reason to quit complaining, the motivation. The motivation. Quit complaining, brethren, against one another, end of verse 9, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. The New Testament actually gives us many reasons not to complain. But here, The reason given is so that we will not be judged. Not judged by another believer because we are complaining, but because God Himself is the judge. The only judge that matters, the one true judge, God Himself. When we talk about God as the judge, it is in reference to dealing righteously with sin. That's what He judges. That's what we mean when we say God is judge. Right? We look at the world, we look at ourselves, we look at sin, and you think, oh man, God is judge. This guy better change. The world better change. We're talking about him being the judge in relationship to guilt, objective guilt, disobedience, sin. And he, as a judge, is a righteous and good judge, a fair judge. It is in his nature. It is in his character. He cannot be a corrupt judge. It's just not possible for him. And so he will deal righteously with sin. And what we have to understand is that James is here saying, in light of that righteous judgment, complaining is sin. Sin is an infraction of God's law which produces guilt before him, the judge. 
And God deals severely with that guilt. And so it must be avoided. And if ongoing, it must be repented of. Back in 5.9, we saw that the coming of the Lord is near, or back in the previous passage rather. James now says the same thing, but with different words. The judge is standing right at the door. And the motivation we are given to cease our complaining is not only because His arrival should produce patience, as we saw last week, but also because we realize that at that time we will be judged. In other words, James uses the second coming of Jesus Christ as both a comfort in suffering, as we saw last week, as well as a warning about how we suffer. In other words, we're going to suffer. It's a fact. He allows suffering. But how are we going to suffer? And we have seen before that this is not a judgment in which the verdict of guilty will result in eternal damnation for the believer A guilty verdict means loss of reward as through fire, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 3. The wood, hay, and straw that will be burnt up at the Bema seat that Paul teaches about in that chapter. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There is indication that though we will pass through that with most likely less reward than we anticipated, we will enter eternal glory with joy, sinless, glorified, full worship, But that Bema seat is going to be painful. And to say that Jesus is standing right at the door is to say that He is ready to enter for the sake of judgment. It is imminent. He is ready and waiting. The picture is simple. You don't show up to someone's house and walk up to the door unless you are ready to enter. Standing on the porch means you got out of your car which you could have waited for or waited in if you weren't ready to go to the party or whatever it is, and you are standing there, and you will enter as soon as you are allowed. There's no physical door that Jesus is standing at. James uses this illustration to remind believers that Jesus can come at any moment, and specifically so that we will stop sinning against others and God by complaining against other Christians. You can stand at that door as long as you want because you're ready to enter. But you can't enter until the master of the house lets you in. And so Jesus Christ is ready to enter, but not until the perfect plan and will of God the Father. If anything, this should show us how serious God takes complaining that James mentions God as judge specifically in this context. Complaining is not just words. It's not just a harmless act. Complaining is sin that will be judged. It is sin because it rejects the sovereignty of God. It is sin because it questions the goodness of God. It is sin because it is a form of slander against others. It is sin because it puts yourself in the place of the judge in that you are making a judgment on someone else's activity or inactivity. Now it may be easy to say, well, the sinful complaining, the the complaining that God is going to judge are the petty complaints, because we can handle those. Those are insignificant. Complaining about minor inconveniences as opposed to justifiable complaining, at least in our minds, when emotional and physical damage and pain is concerned. 
we try to say or convince ourselves, well, that, that's justified because it's really hard. I was really offended. He must be talking about the silly complaints that we could easily not do. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Remember the context. These are people who are being cheated out of their earned pay in a time and profession where not getting paid today means not eating tomorrow. And he says, you are not to complain. Don't complain about the other day laborer who did get his pay. Don't complain about the Christian landowner who is starving you to pad his own bank account. God will judge that kind of complaint. And if God is going to judge the complaining against another who is leading you to your physical death by not allowing you to eat, we can all just let this flow into whatever we're complaining about this very day and understand that is sin too and not ever justified. We complain, you complain, I complain. Undoubtedly, many of you complained this morning. And I think we would all agree, it's quite embarrassing how much we complain. And if you find yourself stuck in an ungrateful, complaining, whining rut, then I want to encourage you that it's not too late to change. It is not too late to repent Let me tell you why I say this. Because in the beginning of the verse, when James says, do not complain, he uses grammar in the Greek that calls for the end of a current action already in progress. He's not saying, day laborers, I heard about what's going on. You're tempted to complain, don't do it. And it's not that they were about to complain and someone's like, oh, we got a letter from James, let's read it. It's like, oh, 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 good thing. No, he knows they're already complaining. James is addressing an ongoing habit of complaint because of his knowledge, but also just the universal knowledge that the rich are exploiting the poor. And so we have opportunity. Isn't God gracious? He doesn't say, I'm going to judge you. You're done. He says, I'm giving you time to change. I can't change. Got that right. That's why my Holy Spirit's helping you. He helps us. You know, sometimes as Christians, we want to watch our mouths because of our testimony. We want to be good testimony to unbelievers. We want to be seen as nice, respectable people. By the way, That's not what a good testimony means. A good testimony means accurately representing Christ, even if it is offensive. And friends, it is offensive. With grace, but with truth. My point here is don't stop complaining because you don't want to sound mean. You don't want to have a bad reputation. You don't want to seem ungrateful or maybe just seem, you don't want to seem weak or whiny. Don't stop complaining because you want others to see you as nice. Stop complaining because you do see God as judge. We're not alone in this. We know that there are Christians all around the world who are suffering in all sorts of situations. Some so severe 
that if we didn't know better, we would declare it fiction. But this is nothing new. Even in the Scriptures, we have examples of those who have suffered before us and have patiently trusted in the Lord without complaint. They have endured. They were blessed because of it. Let's look at a couple of these examples in our next compelling reason to quit complaining. The models. Point number three, the models. He gives us those models in verse 10 and then the beginning of verse 11. He says, As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job. I'm going to stop there, even though the rest of the verse does refer to Job. Although there are many, many examples he points to, or he could point to rather, including his contemporaries, James's contemporaries, among whom is his half-brother, Jesus Christ. In line with the Jewish nature of this book and his Jewish audience, he mentions two examples that his readers would be very familiar with since birth. The prophets in general, and then specifically Job. Now these men, he says, are an example of suffering and patience. The prophets, patience here is the same word that we saw back in verse 8 where he was calling the oppressed believers to be patient speaking of patient endurance, specifically patience towards other people rather than circumstances. And then he adds this word suffering, which is actually a compound word. It's basically two words that can stand alone that become one word. It's a compound word, like because. The word, or the words rather in the Greek, are suffer and evil. So suffering in the Greek is literally suffer evil. As an example of these two, James says, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now he doesn't mention any specific prophets, but we know that many suffered for their proclamation of God's message. They were rejected by their own people, the people that they loved, the people that they were calling to repentance, the Israelites. They were speaking to them. Many of these prophets went through physical and relational hardships because of this from the enemies of God, but also God's people. For example, to illustrate Israel's unfaithfulness, this is one of the wildest stories in the Old Testament. Hosea was commanded to marry an unfaithful wife to illustrate Israel's unfaithfulness and what the Lord was going to do to them. Daniel was persecuted in many ways, the height of which was thrown into a fiery furnace and lion's den. And although God protected him and his friends, this was not a fun or pleasant situation by any means, nor were the accusations that led to that, the rejection by a whole community of people that he was a part of. In Matthew 23, 31, one of the times that Jesus denounces the Jewish leaders of his day, he says, your forefathers murdered the prophets. So we know many of them were murdered by the Jews. You had Moses, who was constantly being attacked and rebelled against by the very people he was used by God to save. 
In 1 Kings 18, you have the moving scene in which Elijah kills the pagan prophets of the false god Baal. But remember, all of this began with Jezebel first killing the prophets of Yahweh. So bad was it that Obadiah quickly had to hide uh, 50 of them in a cave to protect them, or 100 of them. Then you have the worst of them all. And when you think of prophets who have suffered, the first that probably comes to mind is Jeremiah, nicknamed the weeping prophet because of the nature of his message as well as his mourning over his own people, suffering at the hands of pagan kings as well as his own people. All of this he did alone, facing severe loneliness as he was rejected by his countrymen. And God said, because I don't want your wife to have to endure the judgment, I forbid you from being married, because she will be judged too. Now, regardless of whom James has in mind, we know they were prophets who, quote, spoke in the name of the Lord. In other words, James wants to point out that the reason for their suffering was their commitment to do what the Lord told them to do. They suffered because of their service to God. Our suffering often comes for the same reasons. It may not be because we're speaking forth the prophecies of God, although it may be as we face persecution for preaching the gospel and the returning king, that is speaking forth a known prophecy. We may be suffering for living a life of integrity and the pursuit of holiness. Perhaps like the prophets at the hands of their own people, we are persecuted in some way because other believers do not like our godliness. They do not like our biblical counsel. So they mock us, they reject us. It may also be because you refuse to gossip at the workplace or get involved with the cutting of corners financially that your boss wants everyone else to do. And everyone is bothered that you don't do it because they get to clock out earlier if you do that, but you won't do it because you work for the Lord, not them. And so there's persecution, there's difficulty. Whatever it is, we must endure and not complain. When James says that these men serve as examples to us, this is more than just a form of encouragement. He is setting them up as a pattern for us to follow, an illustration of how we are to respond to difficulty. Because that's what that word means. A model, a pattern, an example to follow. But what exactly are they an example of? What is the pattern we are to follow? Well, patience. Endurance. Again, look at the beginning of verse 11. We count those blessed who endured. So what's important is not a list of the particular prophets or their specific stories. Remember, I gave you a list. James did not. His concern is the endurance, the strength in the Lord that we are to have. The prophets of the Lord in the Old Testament were some of the greatest men who have ever lived. I mean, talk about biblical masculinity. Yet they were not exempt from God sovereignly putting abuse and suffering in their lives. They represent the way in which we are to deal with abuse and suffering. Patient endurance that involves all that we have seen this morning and over the past couple of weeks in James 5. Patient endurance that lives Christ's likeness because He is coming soon. 
patient endurance that does not exact revenge or get angry. Patient endurance that does not complain against others, especially other Christians. And when we faithfully do this, like the prophets, we are blessed. Literally happy. This harkens us back to James 1.12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And we know to persevere under trial doesn't just mean grin and bear it until it's over. It means to persevere in a godly way. And here we know that also means not complaining. Speaking of some of the greatest men who ever lived, James goes on to mention Job. We are familiar with Job, considered by many to be the epitome of patience and endurance. I'd like you to join me in Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. If you can find the Psalms, the book right before it is Job. Job chapter 1, and we're, just, we're going to read a very large chunk of this to read about what he endured and even kind of the backdrop that we get a glimpse into that Job had no idea about why all of this happened. Job chapter 1, and I'm going to read through uh, about half of chapter 2. Job 1.1. 1, 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 5,000 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. He was rich and powerful, in other words. This, these numbers were not normal back then. Verse 4. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So this is his godliness. This is his care. Speaking of Father's Day, right? He's offering these sacrifices on behalf of his children in case a sacrifice needed to be paid for their sins. And thus Job did continually. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Now, verse 8 clears up something that a lot of people have confusion about who have read this story. It was not Satan who brought up Job. Look at verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, and you can imagine the scoffing. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan has seen how wealthy Job is how God has allowed him to prosper. So he says, really? You think he fears you for no reason? Look what you've done for him. Verse 10. Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. 
but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So his actual person, his body. So Satan departed from the presence of the the Lord. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Servants and livestock gone. Verse 16. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Could could you think about this? Okay. On the second knock, the second piece of news, then you're like, not another knock. Okay. This can't be. Because this isn't just one group of people. Different people were coming and doing different things at different areas of his land and his livestock. Okay. Verse 18, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, and this is the worst of all, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. So that was a, a, a traditional um, act of mourning. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. Verse 21. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I think I could stop there, and we'd all be convicted for the rest of our lives. How he responded. Verse 22. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. You ever had a boil? 
I've known a few people who've had one, and it's painful, and they don't like it, and it's gross. And here we are told that Job was covered with boils so much that the pus was drying and itchy, and so he took a piece of brick and was scraping the nastiness off of his body. Now we like to call, or I shouldn't say we, people in general like to call a lot of things satanic in this world, but what Job endured was literally satanic as it came directly from the hand of Satan. Yet in all of this, we have that testimony we read in Job chapter 21 and, or Job chapter 1 verses 21 and 22. He said, naked I come from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Look at where we left off. Job 2, 9 through 10. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Remember, this is what Satan said he would do. The wife said, Curse God and die. Satan knew what he was doing. He took away everyone in his family except the one that would give him horrible advice. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Flip to chapter 13 and verse 15. Remember, his friends come who are also, they gave good advice, but they were making false accusations. They were going back and forth. And in one of Job's responses, he says, chapter 13, verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Then look at chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. He says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. I know that my Redeemer lives. We say this knowing that we can look back at the Redeemer. He didn't even know who He was. He didn't know what the details would be. And yet He had faith in Him in the midst of this pain and suffering. See, we have an advantage, though, in learning from Job in that we have the inside scoop. He didn't know about the conversation between God with Satan. We do. And in that we understand that God allowed Job to be tested. We know that Satan cannot do anything without God's permission. And we also understand that God does this same thing in our lives, allows us to be tested so that our faith will be strengthened, which is why, back in James, we will be blessed when we endure. We are strengthened and proven to be worthy. And Job's example shows us that we too can endure whatever comes our way. You may say, but I'm not like Job. Absolutely you are not. Because you will never have it as bad as he did. And yet Job endured.
I have made mention now of the various advantages of trials. There is a source for this. And we see this in our final compelling reason to quit complaining. We've seen the mandate, the motivation, the models, and now the mainstay, which means a support, a chief support of someone or something. Look at the end of verse 11. And have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. This is his dealings with Job. That the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. In the story of Job, by the way, keep your finger in Job if you're still there. In the story of Job, we see two outcomes in his life. First was the spiritual outcome. Job came to a place of even greater devotion and worship, if you can believe that's even possible, as he recognized God's faithfulness. Look at the end of Job, chapter 42, verses 5 and 6. He says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Now I get it. I think it's safe to say that he got it before based on God himself saying there's no one as righteous as him. But now, he said, because of the trial, now I get it. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. By the way, you want a comforting, not an excuse, please, not an excuse, but a comforting example. Job is actually known for his complaining. And we read about it throughout the book of Job. But we know he did not sin against the Lord in that he didn't reject God's sovereignty, he didn't curse God, he didn't do any of those things. He was in pain. And yet, God saw him through it. And this is what he's talking about when he says, I retract, I repent in dust and ashes. I'm not going to complain again. I get it. I see you now. I know who you are. Sorry for the possible allusions to Moana if you've seen that. Second, there is a physical outcome. Everything that was taken away from Job was replaced. As far as the livestock is concerned, it was replaced twofold. Look at verses 10 through 17, Job 42. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all, their, all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. Those numbers are exactly double what we read in chapter 1. Verse 13, he had seven sons and three daughters, again the same. By the way, this is not some miraculous um, that they came alive again resurrection. He remarried and then he had children again and the livestock he started from scratch but the Lord provided and blessed. He named the first Jemima and the second Keziah and the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land no women were found so fair as Job's daughters and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this Job lived a hundred, sorry he didn't remarry, his wife never died. Verse 16, after this, Job lived 140 years 
and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Does this mean that God will bless you with physical possessions if you endure trials? How I answer this will probably determine if any of you come back next week. (laughs) The answer, of course, is no. This is a description of Job's situation, not a promise of replication in our lives. However, we do know from New Testament teaching that proper endurance from trials does result in something far more valuable, which it did in Job's life, it has in all of your lives, and that is spiritual growth, a closer a closer life to God. However, we do know that as we grow spiritually, as we see through this, these trials, it is when we respond rightly, it is in that patience and endurance that we grow and see the Lord's hand. If we go through trials just sinning and complaining and cursing people and cursing God, you're not going to go through that. A more mature person it is that common phrase It comes from a story of a pastor seeing someone from their church who he had heard was going through severe trials. Some of you have used this phrase, but you may not not know where it came from. He said, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for the end of this. You know, all the typical things we pray for when someone's going through difficulty. And she said, pray that I don't waste this trial. Friends, how many trials have we wasted? Because we have just tried to find the light at the end of the tunnel. We've tried to look to man and man's wisdom to a solution rather than accepting God's sovereignty and excelling in endurance. Here's the ultimate point of James mentioning the outcome of, in Job's story. The end of verse 11, the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. That's the point. If he's going to replenish your funds or whatever it is that you may have lost in that trial. It's not a promise, but he does so because he is full of compassion and merciful. And if you endure that trial and you are on earth physically in your health and in terms of material possessions, worse off than you were before, it is because he is full of compassion and mercy. Do not look at verse 11 and think that God is promising the same outcome in your life that he gave to Job. But do look at verse 11 and remember and trust the compassion and mercy of God. This is the support. This is the foundation. This is the mainstay. Not what happened to Job in the end, but why it happened to Job. And it is because of God's compassion and mercy. In other words, the Christian who endures suffering with holiness and obedience can expect ultimate good. Not good in society's eyes, maybe not even good in your eyes, not good in your accountant's eyes, not good in your doctor's eyes, but good according to God. And that's the only good that is truly good. It may not even be the end of the trial or the suffering, because we know many trials end in death. In fact, it's safe to say that 95% of us will die in the midst of a trial because of illness. But we know that even death for the believer shows his compassion and mercy because it means glory. Just like with everything else in the Christian life, our hope is based 
Not on what God has done for others. Not even on what God has done for us, but on His character. Everything in the Christian life, everything in regards to our hope and what we do is based on the character of God. Four compelling reasons to quit complaining. The mandate, the motivation, the models, and the mainstay. I know I'm a bit over, but I want to just close with this silly little illustration to maybe lodge all of this into your minds. A pastor was once invited to the home of an old farmer that was part of his church. He came over for breakfast. The farmer was decked out in his bib overalls, and he asked the pastor, would you please say grace for our meal? Or rather, the pastor asked the farmer, would you please say grace for the meal? And so everyone bowed their heads, and the farmer began with family and other guests and the pastor sitting at the table. The farmer began, Lord, I hate buttermilk. The pastor opened one eye to glance around, look at the farmer thinking, where is this guy going with this? But the farmer loudly continued and proclaimed, Lord, I hate lard. Now the pastor was getting a little concerned. Without missing a beat, the farmer continued, and Lord, you know how much I do not care for raw flour. The pastor once again opened his eye to glance around to see if maybe other people were feeling uncomfortable as he was. Then the farmer added, but Lord, when you mix them all together and bake them, I do love warm, fresh biscuits. So, Lord, when things come up that we don't like, when life gets hard, when we don't understand what you're saying to us, help us to just relax and wait until you are done mixing. It will probably be even better than biscuits. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are complainers because we are proud and ungrateful. But Lord, we are so thankful that we are, by your grace, the aid of your Spirit, more grateful than we could ever be on our own, in our own flesh. Especially when it comes to complaining about each other, Lord, help us to repent. Help us to trust in you. Help us to endure patiently. Help us to fear judgment, not because you are going to send us to hell, but because we desire to lay as many crowns at at your throne as possible one day. Help us not to judge or be bitter or gossip. Help us to look to your word, not just swallow our pride, but to repent of it. To help us see what you are doing in our lives for your glory. May we endure as the prophets did, as Job did, as so many have before us, relying on you, relying on one another, relying on your word. Help us repent of our complaining hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.